This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. company is trying to help folks with nervous systems disorders uh, really feel stronger every day. We're talking about Sage Therapeutics. Jeff Jonas is the CEO at Sage Therapeutics, and we find him uh, on this Wednesday at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference underway in San Francisco. Keep in mind, the stock has run up 223% last year, really on investor optimism and expectations about the company's pipeline. Jeff, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Just quickly, just kind of give an overview of what you guys, the type of uh, treatments that you're working on. Well, first, thanks for having me today. Mm-hmm. Um, Sage is a company that's focused on developing treatments for a, a group of uh, disorders of the brain or the central nervous system or CNS. And we're sort of in a unique position. We have a program that's about to be filed with with the FDA for final marketing authorization. That's an NDA. And that uh, represents the first ever potentially approved therapy for postpartum depression. This is an intravenous drug that had very um, strong results in our phase three program showing basically a resolution of symptoms in the majority of patients uh, within two and a half days of treatment. And that was a drug that was received what's called breakthrough designation um, from the FDA, and the name of the drug is brexanolone. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that drug, we have some other agents that are in development or medicines in development that may uh, offer a unique potential for rapid and robust effect in people with major depressive disorder. That's an oral medication called 217. And those are our lead programs, and those are the ones that have, you know, obviously created a a fair bit of excitement. That sounds like there are massive markets uh, in terms of market share and potential market share and size for either of those, both of those. Uh, That's correct. You You know, although, you know, as a company that's really focused on science and patients, our real goal is to try to develop uh, programs and medicines that are d- differentiated and that make a real difference over the standard of care for patients. So, with for example, so uh, as you mentioned, for postpartum depression, you're talking about 10 to 15 percent of live births in the United States alone mm-hmm. will have women who will receive that diagnosis. Uh, for major depressive disorder, that's even larger, and you're talking about almost more than 16 million new cases a year in the U.S. alone. Both of these areas represent um, real important medical areas of, of unmet medical need where, you know, the folks at SAGE are really hoping to make a difference. How do these drugs work? Because I always think about, I have a sister who's done a lot of work uh, in the area where we're dealing with populations, very depressed populations. I mean, they often talk about chemical imbalances. How, does this right the chemical balance or imbalance that's, that's in, a, in, a, in a particular patient? Well, you know, that's a very uh, complicated question, and and the, the current conventional wisdom has always been that there are imbalances of what are mm-hmm. called neurotransmitters in the brain, and almost all the conventional therapies, including serotonin reuptake inhibitors, really have been developed with that thinking. The approach at SAGE has really been to rethink this entire thesis of what causes depression, and we actually believe it has to do with what, you know, for want of a better word, the way the brain's neural circuitry works, and we 
think that if you can correct those types of abnormal circuits in the brain, that we can actually achieve a, a much better type of response. And and if you believe that thesis, then you uh, we you see we, what we and what we've seen with our data is a very rapid and very uh, profound response. Uh, one one of the things that people often forget is that depression itself is really not a, a statement of slowing or a condition of slowing. Mm-hmm. It's a condition of often agitation, irritability with really persistent thoughts. So you can conceptualize depression very differently, and that's what we've been doing as sort of abnormal hyperactive surgery and, um, circuitry. And we actually believe that our medicines can actually treat that particular um, uh, disability or, so, uh, or function. So in terms of the postpartum uh, treatment and also for MDD, the ma- uh, major depressive disorder, when might you guys get to market? Well, so we're planning today to uh, not today. We're planning now to have our new drug application filed in the first half of this year for brexanolone, mm-hmm. which is the intravenous treatment for postpartum depression. And if things go well, and if the drug is approved, we should be able to launch it by the first half of 2019. And this would be the very first. Um, treatment for po- specifically for postpartum depression ever. And also it, it has the potential to be the very first rapidly acting drug to treat a mood disorder ever introduced. So we're very excited by this and the mm-hmm. potential opportunity this offers for women. Hey, just got about 40 seconds left here. What's the cost of these drugs? Um, it's too soon to say. You know, that's work that we're doing. We are working actively with payers and patient groups to determine you know, how we can price these drugs. Obviously, we'll, we'll try to price them reasonably and price based on the value that we think they offer for women. All right. And you've got insurers saying that they're going to cover this stuff? Just quickly. Um, again, we, we, it's very preliminary. Mm-hmm. We are in meetings with them. With the, the, the feedback we've had from insurers and payers has been very optimistic. And again, you're talking about a program that may offer the potential for treatment within two and a half days versus months and months of other types of chronic therapy. So I, we're, yeah. we're having great, uh, great interest. Right. And I bet a lot of people doing kind of the cost analysis versus one treatment versus another. Jeff Jonas, great to get a checkup with you. Uh, Chief Executive Officer at Sage Therapeutics. figure out what I got and what I don't want. And Evernote something I use a lot, actually, as it happens. Chris O'Neill. Chris O'Neill, CEO of Evernote, joining us. Does not know that I'm a power Evernote user. Makes me very Paying happy. you a monthly subscription. Thank you. Um, I don't know if that helps you keep the lights on or not. Better than CES. We were discussing with great irony because it's an electronics show right now. Uh, the power's gone out in the Las Vegas Convention Center, and so things are grinding to a halt. Uh, but there, there's something to that, actually, when when you're in the business of helping people understand all this stuff. Like, the CES show is all about all this data moving around and all these crazy things happening, uh, all these ways to have your car connected and have your drone giving you data and images. And, and, and we get so much information, but finding out what we've got and how to sort through it seems to be a big part of my problem, at least. Yeah, that's the job we're hired to do, essentially. Right? We're living in a, in a time when personal and professional lives and contexts are blurring. Uh, technology has done so many amazing things for us in the world, but it's also led to a feeling of being overwhelmed almost at all times. So really that's, as I said, the job that Evernote's hired to do. How can we make you feel a little bit more in control, a little bit more organized and ultimately productive? So that's really what, what we're hired to do in, in the world. Corey uh, is always showing me and like, look at how easily I can download a business card. Oh, no, and- scanning a business card is great. But also <laughs> I, I put her. all of our show lineups, all the notes I get from our excellent producer, Paul Brennan go right up into my Evernote so I can search through them over time. What's the goal in terms of where you guys want to take this? Yeah, so we're, uh, our mission really is this notion of remembering everything. That's where we started. 
That's why the elephant logo, right? This notion that elephants never forget. Right. But what we found in listening to our users and watching how they use the product, they do much more than just remember things. They actually are trying to take ideas, capture them, and turn them into things over time. So that's really the second part of it. And the third part, increasingly, we'll see how we can use Evernote in contexts that make uh, teams work effortlessly together as well. So that's really the direction. So we think about how can we extend the product from being something that historically has been for me, like a single player, uh, to make it more powerful when other people use it. And that's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Your business, is it mostly single users? It or is today. Is it a lot more but. The, co the corporate market sounds like what you're trying to go after, too. Well, it's, well, it's interesting. We're, we said we're, we're listening and we're spending a lot of time with our users. And the interesting um, observation is 70% of our users use the product in both a personal and a professional context. Mm -hmm. So what they're basically saying to us, either with their words or with their behaviors, is like, I want this to be used in a professional context. I want to be able to use it with other people. And then the other thing, which is a little uh, – has always been part of the DNA of the company, is how can we use emerging technologies? How can we use machine learning? Learning to help, right? A lot of technology distracts us. Uh, Evernote is, is a technology that can help. So, and, and now to that, um, I talked to a lot of people who will try Evernote and they bail. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder what your churn rate is, what you think the churn rate should be, and what the progress is towards that goal. Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting time of the year. People come back, they set resolutions, which 93%. Want to get organized. Right, well, they want to get organized. But it also means it's, it's, it's behavior change. So establishing any product or anything as a habit is really hard. So we're really working hard to relentlessly improve the quality and make it easier. And we have 220 million global users. So at that stage, Daily you're not, users? Uh, No, this is registered total in the, okay. in the world. We, um, How many are active? Uh, we don't disclose the active numbers, but it is a healthy portion of that. Um, the reason, the reason, half. Um, it's less. It's less, <laughs> it's less than two toilets. It's less than every person has ever signed up for. It. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But establishing that habit, making the product just easier to use, because we're not talking to early adopters and innovators solely anymore. So, how do we use technology to make it easier to say, hey, hey, maybe it's a template. If you're a lawyer using the product or a reporter, here, here are other ways in which people have found value in the product, so we can remove that early barrier to just how do you use this piece of technology and how does it fit in my life to make it easier for me to do the things that I want to do. You know, once do. Corey showed it to me, I'm like, oh, wow, this really makes an awful lot of sense. I downloaded it. I'm not using it. But I'm just curious, like, how do you, you know, in terms of marketing it and selling it, yeah. I'm curious how much, how aggressive you have to be, how much you have to spend, and yeah. how do you do it so that you can get to those people? So we've been very fortunate. So we, it is a high-quality product that people do, do can download very easily. So a lot of the growth, almost all the growth has been organic. We do not spend money in a traditional sense on marketing mm -hmm. to, uh, to just through word of mouth. Uh, so technology investments in R&D are really important because we want to have a really high-quality right. product. Right. The other thing that we have is, is a community of people that – when they use um, – they talk about Evernote. They say, my Evernote. But there's these 8,000 people who are, are Evernote certified consultants all over the world who are super passionate about what we do. And they will take you by the hand and walk you through how you can use Evernote in the context of your daily life, uh, professional or personal. So so we're really fortunate. Right. Um, now we're going to start to change that in 2018. We're going to ramp up um, our investment in marketing in a traditional sense to really uh, follow this strategy I was describing. Really, we want to make it more relevant in a professional context. And to do that, we're going to have to um, spend a little bit of so money. Let me, let me, give, give me that a, a perfect example, a, a case study on, on what a, an Evernote user is. What problem do they have before? What, how does Evernote fix it? 
Uh, oh, gosh. I mean, in personal life, we have like kids schedules, we have uh, artwork, we have all sorts of stuff that needs to needs to live in one spot. Um, a sales professional, right, talking to people all day long, having multiple conversations, both inside their company and outside the company. And at the end of the week, you know, they have to distill all that down into a set of action items. And in some cases, upload their ideas into Salesforce, like a like. An so actual. how do you use Evernote to do this? So, so just capturing like a lightweight um, customer relationship management would be would be how a salesperson would use it. Right. So in other or, words, so they would take their emails, forward them to Evernote. They would take they would type notes from conversations and keep them in Evernote. They would take photographs of the business cards they get or the the, the corporate drawing of the doodles that they make to help explain the thing and put that all into Evernote it, just with exactly. the camera on their phone. Exactly. With the camera on their phone, they email you can email documents in, you can take pictures of whiteboards. All these different touch points, and then organize it around that client in, it, in that example. So there's lots of examples in you know, sales, sales. Salespeople use it in this way. Researchers, so a lot of scientists uh, will use this when they're researching, or authors when they're when researching a book. Right? So you're, you're going around the, the web all day long, and we have something called a web clipper to kind of right. clip you a click page. a little thing in the corner of a web browser, and it gets added to your Evernote. Exactly. Files. So you can come back and you can cl- collect all this raw materials, and then you can turn it into a kind of Work in progress for, for and me, ultimately the use is, final use. Where did which which Michelangelo painting was I was I reading about that had the one with the Virgin Mary? Which was that one called of the baby? Which was one that had the the fig leaves? You know, like that kind of stuff could be really useful. I'm right. curious, you you guys are you still working with LinkedIn? We are, yes. And how's that working out? Great. So you, wh- the use case that that uh, that Corey was describing. So you meet somebody, and people still do use business cards in the world. Uh, you take a picture of it, and it uses machine learning to understand what the content is, and then connect it to your contacts. But also, if you're both on LinkedIn, right. it's an automatic connection to say, "Hey, um, let's just connect on on LinkedIn." So how, that's a very specific use case. One last question: How do you monetize it all? It's about twenty five seconds. We have a we have a freemium business model, which means the vast majority of our uh, users use our product for free. And then there's a set of features, um, so the ability to use the product offline and across unlimited amount of devices, which we ask people to to pay us in return. I'm a paying customer, so you know. He Thank you, it. Corey. I, I, I love you most days. I hate you every once in a while, like any product I use. But you're, <laughs> if I love you most days, you're ahead it's of okay. I love him most days, but hate him every once in a while too. <laughs> so Chris O'Neill, like, we love you for coming like. by. The CEO of Evernote came like me all the way from Silicon Valley. In his case, all the way from Redwood City. California, the glorious Redwood City. Listen to Bloomberg Markets. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed it is. And uh, and what an interesting time for the drive to the close. We are joined right now by Ryan Dietrich, the senior managing strategist for the LPL Financial. Uh, with a really interesting time in the markets, uh, Ryan, and glad to have you on. Um, when you're looking at what's going to happen in the markets, we've got this dramatic rise in the bond market today. We've got this a slow, steady, a relentless uh, equity market rise, even though the markets are down a slight bit today. And I wonder uh, what uh, is most notable to you in this environment. 
Well, first off, Corey, thanks for having me back. But you're right. You know, it really looks like 2018 is almost a repeat of 2017 when you look at the equity markets, at least. It's a slow, steady rise higher, like you said. You know, we've got about 10 minutes to go. And if the S&P were to finish green, I know it's down slightly right now, that would be up seven days in a row to kick off a new year for the first time since 1987. So we hear 87. We always have different thoughts. Nonetheless, there's still a lot more positives and negatives out there, in our opinion. And you're right. You know, this whole yield's moving higher. You have China today saying they might stop buying the U.S. Uh, Treasury debt, and that's got people a little, little on a leery side. Our opinion is a higher trending 10-year yield with low inflation is something we're expecting in 2018, and the overall global economy can hopefully support that. And historically speaking, when you have low inflation and a little bit higher yield, usually that means the economy is in pretty good shape, and we think that's exactly what we'll see this year. All right, but what's wrong with this trade? Well, great question, Carol. Obviously, the big thing that potentially could throw a caveat on things is inflation could heat up. You know, inflation potentially could heat up. Look at what's happening with those base metals. Lead, for instance, is breaking out the multi-year highs right now. All the base metals, industrial metals, that's saying the market is suggesting potentially better uh, better economy, but maybe even a little bit more inflation than most people think. And let's not forget, we have a new Fed chair coming uh, next month. And historically speaking, going back to 1914, when new Fed chairs come in, markets can be pretty rocky those first six months when you have that new leadership. So those two things combined, maybe a little more inflation than we expect in the new Fed chair, are two at least near-term concerns that we do have we're obviously actively watching here. Where do you think we're going to see that inflation? We, you know, we haven't, you know, the, the price adjustments have certainly helped, but we just haven't seen that inflation pick up anywhere. Um, and I wonder if there's any particular part of the economy where you think that might show up, because I think that would, your answer will now tell us sort of what you think is going to start to really heat up e- economically. Well, exactly. And that's the question. You know, Obviously, the Fed and the ECB have both kind of been scratching their heads for a couple of years now why we're not getting any inflation. And you talk about, you know, like I said, you've got clearly crude breaking out above 60 here. Uh, Brent is up around $70 a barrel. So where could it start? You know, let's hope it starts with wage inflation. You know, still 2.5% wage growth is what we keep seeing. And that's kind of that canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for broader inflation. So we haven't seen it yet, but we do expect a little bit of pickup in wages overall. And that could be where it starts. And again, that's not always a bad thing. Usually where you have worrisome signs of inflation is once you get about 4% year-over-year wage growth. And that's when things can overheat. We're obviously quite a ways away from that. What are your financial advisors hearing from investors? Well, the big thing right now, Carol, that we're hearing is clearly this has been a little long in the tooth rally. You know, S&P 500 is looking at potentially, if it's higher this month, 15 straight months in a row on a total return basis of gains. We've never seen anything like that. So when you consider how smooth last year was without even so much as a 3% correction, what we're trying to tell our advisors is, yes, we think this bull market can continue and maybe even hit double-digit returns. But historically speaking, when you have a very calm year like we did last year, we looked, and there's seven other years we found that didn't pull back at least 5% on the S&P. That next year, the average pullback that we saw was over 12%. Also, the next year was higher 9% on average. So, in other words, expect a lot more volatility this year. But all in all, it could be some potential nice buying opportunities as we do finally get some of those 5 and maybe even a 10% correction. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, where do valuations come into your reasoning? Because I get it if you look at maybe price-to-earnings growth and whether or not some of these names can grow into their valuations based on expectations of continued earnings growth, um, then maybe you can be a little bit more comfortable. But valuations, where does that kind of stack up when you look at this market uh, and whether or not it makes sense in terms of more gains? And I'm talking about 
the equity market, of course. Sure, on equity markets, absolutely, Carol. Well, definitely that is the big concern when you have a PE multiple around 19 on the S&P 500, and it's kind of why we're not looking for another you know, 20% gain uh, as we head in uh, over 2018. But at the same time, you know, look at some of the recent manufacturing data that we've had, really, really strong. We just see very few reasons to expect a recession over the next 12 to 18 months, and obviously the worst market corrections do take place during a recession. Wait, I'm sorry, you said you do expect a recession over the next? We do not. Apologies if I said that. We do not expect a recession over the next 12 to 18 months because there's so many factors that are positive. Look at the global earnings. You know, we're having very strong global earnings developed, emerging, and U.S. all have positive earnings for the second year in a row. We haven't seen anything like that since before the financial crisis. So as long as we don't have a recession, which we do not see, clearly overvaluations are a concern. But again, when we blink and well, not blink, when we close our eyes and wake up a year from now and we're back, we still think this bull market absolutely can continue. When you look at the change in the in Treasury pricing, does that start to you know at what point would that start to see for you a real shift away from equities and and uh, you know other opportunities in the markets? Right. Well, when you let's just say let's put it this way: as long as the move is relatively slow and steady, we think the market can take it in stride. Like the U.S. dollar, the U.S. dollar can go up, U.S. dollar can go down. Usually, markets take that in stride. You can have bull markets no matter what, as long as there's not a lot of volatility. And our opinion is yes. We think you know we could have a ten-year yield up around three, three and a quarter, maybe uh, before the end of the year. At the same time, if it's more slow and steady, hopefully equity markets can take that in stride. But let's not forget: fourteen months in a row without so much as a three percent correction. There's going to be volatility. We might blame it on China, might blame it on the yield curve, might be earnings coming up, whatever that reason is. There's going to be more volatility and a pullback, and we'll blame it on something. But it's perfectly normal this late in the cycle to have a little more volatility. How does the massive inflows into index funds, specifically those tracking the S&P 500 to the big, broad, you know, broader market, if you will, how does that maybe, though, make it a little bit more tricky in terms of if things start to come undone? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, we don't really know because we've never seen quite the inflows like we've just recently had the last couple of years. But you talk about active-passive for a second. You look back in history. Yes, for about five years or so, clearly being more passive, invested in ETFs could have been much more advantageous. But last year, there's been a lot of decoupling between the correlations of overall stocks and sectors in the S&P 500. So our personal opinion is as we head into 2018 and even into the future, being a little more actively managed can definitely be more advantageous than being passive like it would have rewarded you the last five years. Maybe we can have five years of active uh, being a little bit uh, better for investors. Does that mean you move more towards value and away from uh, just kind of the big cap names? Just about 20 seconds left here. Absolutely. Value versus growth. We like value uh, this year as we have an improving economy. Value usually does better when an improving economy. Also, nice valuations and higher interest rates normally would suggest value should slightly do better in growth. That's what we're looking for in 2018. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you. Being powerful. Yep, that's the subject of a new book. Patty McCord is former chief talent officer at Netflix. Her new book, and by the way, because I've been doing a little bit of research, has been cropping up on lists of top business and management books to read in 2018. The book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. She's based in California, but she found our way to our New York studio here in uh, Bloomberg 1130 studio, I should say. Welcome. Thank nice to you. have you here. It's great to be here. Tell us about this book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. I feel like it's very very timely. Well, um, 
I was at Netflix for a really long time, and I worked on a really unique culture there. And then when I left, I thought, I'm going to go out and see what other people in my field are doing and, you know, look at all the other innovation that I'm finding. And this is going to be really great exploration. I was consulting with startups and big companies, and what I found was not much. Uh, And I found that we were still managing people like we were in the 60s, and it wasn't working very well. And I found that the startup community was like, well, we should probably start acting like grown-ups, bring a policy (laughs) manual in. And then the people who were in large corporations were, we can't move very fast because we have too many policies. And so – and and there was this other trend that made me crazy, which is um, talking about empowerment, you know, these – goofy terms that we use that are just nonsensical. As we all get ready for our annual reviews, we're taking notes here. Oh, God. Well, anyway, so I my my observation was, look, we don't, the reason why we've got to go around empowering people is we took it all away. And so the way to give people power back is to assume that they are, assume they're adults, and assume they want to do good work when they assume come to work. Assuming you made a good hire, right? Like, assume you made a good hire and let them do their thing. Yeah, and if you didn't, the fault isn't in the hire, isn't in the person you hire. If you made a bad hire, you had a bad interview process. You had a bad vetting process. Mm. Somebody wasn't paying attention to what was standing in front of them. So it's not the person's fault. It's 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 how the person got here. That's that's the fault of the system. Absolutely. Or you, you found a square peg. It's 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 not devaluing the peg. It's valuing the individual, Absolutely. but saying that that person. We yes. didn't give that person a chance to succeed, otherwise they would. Yeah, and so the the basic message is to stop lying to people like we do, that every company is going to give you lifetime employment and um, and that your entire career is going to be spent somewhere. So sometimes when I do talks, like last one I did a couple of months ago, there were like 700 people in the audience, and I said, raise your hand if you're in the job you had when you graduated from college. And if you're an intern, don't raise your hand, right? So, of course, <laughs> nobody does. And I'm like, What? They couldn't retain you, <laughs> you know, and it's 700 people right. and our careers are journeys and we should own them. And so what's the average duration of an employment at Netflix? I don't and I don't I'll say I don't know a lot of Netflix people, maybe because Netflix is way down in Silicon Valley, yeah, way down yeah. in Los Gatos, about yeah. 70 miles from yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I don't know anymore. I've been gone five years, yeah. so I don't know. But the term because it is because the company has been really successful in the face of all kinds of problems in innovating in real, some remarkable ways. And I've been a huge critic of the company at every step, uh-huh. and have they continued to do very well. Uh-huh. And I wonder what it is about that culture. The culture is about the future of the company. And so what happens is we're always, I say we, I'm not there anymore, but it feels like my company forever. The company is always looking at what's going to happen in the future and staffing for that. And so when the transition from uh, DVD by mail to streaming came, we didn't say, oh, all of, your, all of you DVD by mail people, you'll be great at streaming because they were different people. Right. It was a whole different thing. So because Netflix has evolved and innovated so dramatically, we could do pretty dramatic things inside of the culture. So how does compensation play into this? Because I think it is different. My dad, who worked at a company for 40 years, knew it, felt comfortable, all that good stuff, and was rewarded for doing so. But I feel like, you know, we're in a world where you're not expected to stay at a company for a long time. So Mm -hmm. what's that relationship? And then how does compensation, I don't know, what's the right compensation in that kind of environment? Well, here's how I think about compensation. Compensation, partly because I've always been in very competitive environment in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, where um, very often su- supply does not equal demand. 
right? So it's scarcity around people. Yeah. And so in the Silicon Valley, I've learned that compensation is basically market-based, right? It's like real estate. Mm-hmm. If you have a skill that very few people have that people really value, then you're worth a lot. Supply-demand. Supply-demand. But more than that, it, you know, the successful people that I know, and I know a lot of them, they're successful because they've worked in great places and accomplished amazing things with other amazing people. And it's the accomplishments that make you valuable, right? It's mm-hmm. not the years of experience. So, oh, you were at this company. In, you know, for example, nowadays, if I say, oh, you had that same job for 14 years and you never did anything else and you never learned anything else and you never acquired any other skills, you're actually your retained value is only valuable to the company you're still at. Hmm. That's an interesting. It's yeah. so different. So my uh-huh. All right, let me push back on that. Yeah. Okay. If you really, if you work somewhere and you're damn good at something, if you're great at managing HR, if you're really good at sales in the enterprise software sector, and you've worked at, at Oracle for eight years, yeah. for ten years, whatever, you might know Oracle really well, but you also probably know have a really great Rolodex and have a really good customer base, and you know how to how to sell ice to Eskimos if you're that good. Yeah. I was at Netflix for 14 years. I think I'm pretty good. There we go. (laughs) So there we go. But but it might be what you've done inside of that world too, right? Like you just talked about skills that you acquired that transfer anywhere in all of your examples, Right. right? And so you got a great run at whatever those companies were, but you have this incredible skill set of accomplishing things mm-hmm. and knowing things that you can take to other places. That's my point. My point isn't that just because longevity doesn't guarantee you future success, right? right. And that's the difference between what we're talking about and your dad. I love that there's, there's one passage you talk about, be a great company to be from. Yeah. <laughs> I love that about kind of the whole idea of kind of moving on. Yeah. Come back anytime because I think this is so relevant. I'd love to ask you about your advice for like what we should get out of lawmakers mm-hmm. kind of with this thinking. So maybe you'll come back. Uh, Patty McCord, the book is Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Check it out, everybody. This is Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to do some... Shaken here on Bloomberg Markets. A look at some of the movers uh, in the Wednesday trade. S&P 500, let's start there, shall we? 193 names in the S&P 500 higher today, 311 lower, uh, one unchanged. Biggest gainer, though, in the S&P 500, shares of United Continental Holdings, ticker is UAL. That stock up 6.7%, up $4.60 a share, closing at $73.08 a share in today's session. Now that stock is up about about 8.5% today. What happened? Well, it rose the most 
since early October after an analyst upgraded the stock and the airline boosted its outlook for the fourth quarter. Citigroup analyst Kevin Chrissy upgraded United to a buy rating today, saying pricing on its overseas routes is beginning to outperform domestic fares. The Chicago-based airline has the largest international route network among the three biggest U.S. carriers. Upgrade is uh, really fueling optimism among airline investors as fares increase and demand improves worldwide. Keep in mind, too, United late yesterday bumped up its forecast for its fourth quarter pre-tax profit margin to as much as 7%. Corey previously had forecast no more than 5%, and the airline also increased its forecast for revenue for each seat flown a mile, a key metric and a measure of pricing power. American Airlines Group uh, raising its outlook for that measure known as unit revenue. That happened uh, also today. You know what's up today? What? Irony. Irony is up today. Why? Because the power went out at the Consumer Electronics you Show. And in the Electronics Show, the story. power went out. And it went out just That's as I was about to talk to the CEO of a stock uh, that uh, saw itself as almost as a biggest gainer of the day, 57% up. Another uh, drug care company is up a little more on the Russell. But 57% increase in the shares of an old-time tech company, Eastman Kodak. Uh, once again, uh, the, the day after, uh, two days of gains, are fantastic, but the day after uh, Eastman Kodak announced that they were uh, licensing the name Kodak to a company that's going to create some kind of blockchain thing and looking at this technology as a way to um, uh, help photographers see uh, who's using their images and help them get paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that stock up again today, massive. We were about to talk to the CEO, We've been promoting it all day on the Twitter and on the radio and then the power in Las Vegas decided not to, not to uh, help us out here. We're still trying to get a, a hold of him, and we'll, and we'll bring you him, uh, Jeff Clark, the CEO of that company, because it's a real company yeah. and an interesting company at a very interesting point in its in its very long history. But uh, uh, today, the stock having this fantastic response, still, um, uh, you know, in, as a yeah. result of announcing it's going to get into Bitcoin um, over the over the course of two days, the stock is up two hundred and forty five percent. That's off the charts. It's crazy. Even, even though revenues are down 8%, uh, revenues declining still for that company, although declining at a slower rate. Uh, it's an interesting company to take a look at. I've been reading about Kodak again all day, and I haven't Time read about Kodak in a couple of years. Interesting. Hey, I mentioned uh, shares of UAL, and I also mentioned American just briefly. Uh, American, too, uh, with some upbeat news about um, the key metric uh, in the airline industry, uh, talking specifically about uh, revenue for each seat flown a mile American Airlines raised their outlook for that measure, unit revenue it's called, and American Airlines shares were also up today, up 3.2%, up a buck seventy to 53.78 a share. And I also do want to mention uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Shares were up about 1.3%. That's the Class A shares. Uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway adding Gregory... Um, Abel, I hope I'm saying it right. Or I think it's Abel, actually, and Ajit yeah. Jain to its board as speculation grows about Buffett's successor as CEO. Um, Abel will be vice chairman of the non-insurance business, while Jane will be vice chairman of the insurance operations. Um, so, yeah, and of course, there's been a lot of uh, questions about who will succeed Mr. Buffett at uh, Berkshire Hath- Hathaway. Abel and Jane, both longtime contenders to succeed Mr. Buffett. Um, so, yeah. There you, um, go. you know the difference between major and minor surgery? Uh, what? If they do the procedure on you, it's minor surgery. If they do it on me, the same procedure, it's major surgery. <laughs> very sensitive. So intuitive like, surgical so shares like up 7% percent today. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, intuitive surgical. Uh, pre- so intuitive surgical about to take the stage in San Francisco, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. But before they did so, the news was so good, they felt they had to actually pre-announce positive earnings. They said fourth quarter uh, da Vinci procedures. That's, of course, the the uh, intuitive surgical robotic uh, surgery device. 
They were up 17%. Preliminary systems revenue up 20%. Service revenue up 13%. And so they shipped 216 systems over 163 the previous fourth quarter. So positive news out of uh, the robot maker, Intuitive Surgical, that does invasive surgery. Quick check on the VIX today, uh, just down about 2% after gaining nearly 6% yesterday, dipping back below 10, closing at 9.88. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for a price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be Cinex, Corey. It's a uh, contract manufacturer and distributor of technology. A stock. Something like that. Based out in Fremont, California. It's been around since 1980, public since 2003. The ticker is SNX. Now, you may, may remember earlier I was talking about a management change. I mean, that's a big deal for this company because they haven't had a whole lot of changes since they were founded. Uh, you go back a decade and you see that uh, Kevin Marai became the co-chief executive officer uh, along with the founder, Robert Huang. November of that year, he became the sole CEO. Also, uh, in that uh, period, November of 08, the stock got down to $8.63. It soared as much as 16-fold since then, had a record as recently as last week, and now Mirai is leaving. He's stepping down on March 1st. The chief operating officer, Dennis Polk, is going to succeed him. Uh, Mariah still is going to be around, though. He'll become the chairman of the company once he uh, gives up the CEO position. Just the idea of management change, well, it's an unsettling to some investors, evidently. Synex's shares fell 6.3% on the day and was the biggest drop for the stock since March 2016. All right, and the stock's now down about 3% so far this year. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Our Bloomberg Stocks columnist right here. On Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.